Let's make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. As we celebrate uh, this Mother's Day, the Lord has given us uh, a chapter that actually says absolutely nothing about being a mother. (laughs) But we're thankful for you nonetheless. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as you guys head that direction, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul has planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. And as he's planted the church there in Acts, uh, issues have begun to arise within the church uh, located there in Corinth. And so as Paul is now uh, on his way in his missionary journey, likely in Ephesus at this point, he's begun to receive letters from the church in Corinth about issues that have arisen inside the church. And one particular group of letters he received was from a lady named Chloe and her household. And in these letters, she described uh, sin issues that had taken place inside the church, uh, most uh, prolific of which is the sin of divisiveness. This is really what Paul addressed right off the bat, that if you're going to be divided, you've lost the battle before you've even started this thing. And so he encourages them to be united in the Spirit, and then he begins to address the sin issues. There's a man who's actually sleeping with his stepmother there in the church at Corinth. So there's a lot of things they're letting go. They're being incredibly liberal uh, with God's liberty that he's given them. And so Paul wants to make it clear that as a church, they're called to be set apart. They're called to be different than the world around them. And so he finally, by the time we arrive in chapter 7, he begins to address the issues written to him by the church leadership. And so he now at chapter 7, he says, concerning the questions you have for me. So he's taken six chapters to address foundational elements uh, in regards to their sanctification or their lack of sanctity. And now he's going to address issues that they have brought to him as church leadership, beginning with uh, marriage and divorce. And so he's talked about their purity and how they should act, how they should operate. And now he's going to address uh, marriage, divorce, and also going to layer in slavery. Now, uh, you should not chuckle that Paul includes slavery along with a chapter on marriage. So if any of you men want to laugh, uh, do it, but don't let her catch you while you do that. So Paul ties this all together, but as he's sharing this in chapter 7, there's this idea that he brings up in chapter 7, verse 22, where he says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman, that likewise he who is called while he is free is Christ's slave. So there's this tremendous liberty that we have in Christ Jesus. What used to shackle us, what used to be our sin nature, we're now free to no longer be tied down to that. But if we're physically uh, in bondage, what Paul says is you're actually free. It, It looks like to the world around you that you're enslaved, but you're actually completely and totally free in Christ. And so in light of that freedom that Paul is sharing with them about in chapter 7, he now transitions to chapter 8 and brings up their question they had regarding meat sacrificed to idols. Right? One of your favorite things as we talk about meat sacrificed to idols. Their question was, is it okay as we have liberty in Christ to partake of the meat that has been sacrificed to these pagan gods? And what Paul says to them is, look, uh, these gods are really nothing at all. And so it's okay to go to the Aldi meat market and buy the cheap meat that's been sacrificed to idols. It's okay to go in and buy uh, the bacon and make yourself a big old bacon sandwich. You're not tied down to the law any longer. And what my boys know in our household, we have this saying that the only thing better than bacon is more bacon. 
right? Load it up. Paul's saying you can have at it. In the words of comedian uh, Jim Gaffigan, you can go bippity-boppity bacon, right? We love us some bacon, so have at it. Eat yourself a big old bacon sandwich, and yet, as you're expressing your bippity-boppity bacon, uh, make sure you're mindful of people around you. Be mindful as you mature in Christ that you might not accidentally stumble one who is weaker. In fact, what Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 8, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so as we express our Christian liberties, this freedom that we have in Jesus, we need to be mindful of those around us because we could inadvertently make someone else weaker than us stumble, and that's what really matters. They're the point. Seeing people come along with us for all of eternity, they're the most important. Now, as Paul is sharing this with them in chapter 8, he knows he's going to get some pushback. And so as he as he anticipates pushback from the church in Corinth, he then decides to give them an example in chapter 9, which is essentially what he's going to walk us through this morning. And he doesn't give them just any old example. He gives them a personal example. Uh, this is my personal experience with giving up liberties. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 9. <clears throat> and he's going to start with a series of rhetorical questions. He says in verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to the others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And so as Paul begins these rhetorical questions, he starts off with this one, which is simply, am I not an apostle? And the reason Paul brings that up is there was some doubt towards his apostleship. Now, the word apostle just simply means one who is sent, a sent one. But in this spot, he's talking specifically about a capital A apostle. Am I not one who was called specifically by Jesus? Now, to be a capital A apostle, you had to follow a few different criteria. You needed to be, first of all, called by the Lord himself. You also, in their way of looking at it, needed to know Jesus, to see Him face to face, Him as your Lord. And then lastly, you needed to be trained directly by Jesus. And so here we have the 12 that He had originally called, and then eventually uh, Judas, taking his own life, had fallen away. But what Paul makes, and he brings this assertion up multiple times through his letters, is that he, in fact, was an apostle. And what he calls himself in chapter 15, verse 8, is an apostle who was born out of due season. And so he was born an apostle, but not in the same season as all these other men who we look at and see as the big 12 that Jesus called. And yet think about Paul's life. What he says in Acts chapter 9, excuse me, the story about him in Acts chapter 9, as he's making his way to Damascus there, on his way as Saul of Tarsus to persecute Christians, to throw them in jail, uh, perhaps even uh, send them to their, own, to their death. As he's on his way, the Lord literally meets him on the road to Damascus and says in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why, have, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replied, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he sees the risen Lord right there on the road to Damascus. And Paul replies to him and says, Lord, what would you have me do? And the Lord said, Arise and go. He is now being sent to the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
And so Paul had seen the risen Lord. He had been given a command to go, and he in fact makes his way on to Damascus from that point forward. Now from Damascus he leaves, and he tells us in Galatians chapter 1 that he went to the desert of Arabia, and there he spends three years communicating directly with Jesus is the risen Lord. And what Jesus did was He took Him through a three-year program, the similar three-year program He took the disciples to uh, through, and He teaches Him so that He can then take the Word of God to the Jew or to the Gentile and show Jesus on every page in the Old Testament. He shares with Him the Gospel. He unveils, he, he, He reveals Himself in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so this is what Paul is trying to communicate to them, that I am in fact... An apostle. I've seen the risen Lord. And he says, here's the deal. You are actually proof of my apostleship. And this is Paul talking about his calling. And oftentimes we get ourselves so confuzzled about, have I been called to this? What am I called to? Uh, Here's all the harder you need to think about your calling. Um, If the Lord has called you to be a mother, uh, he will give you children. That's how you know that you're called to be that. And if he has not, then he has not called you to be that at this time, and maybe not at all. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's called me to be a pastor. I know that because there's a congregation. And so if I had not, I've shared with you all uh, my calling. If I had not uh, actually been called to be a pastor, none of you would be here. And so therefore, it's obvious that I have been called. And this is what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. I've been called to be sent to the Gentiles, and you're the proof, you're the seal of my apostleship. You're the seal of my calling. Now, for each of us, there is a calling specifically that we have received from the Lord, and that is the call to salvation. The most important calling that any of us can have. And as He calls us, here's His promise to us. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Now He who establishes us with with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. As you receive Jesus into your heart, He gives you the Spirit as a seal, as a promise of a delivery of safe passage. What I mean by that is in the ancient world, for Roman governors, even Caesar himself, they would have these rings, their signet ring, and they would put uh, hot wax on a document or on a package. And if the Roman governor or the Caesar himself uh, impressed his ring into that, it received the seal of safe passage. If anyone were messing with that for any reason, uh, it would be off with their head if the seal was broken. So the seal guaranteed a safe passage to the next spot that it was traveling. This is what Paul says we have at the point of salvation. We have been sealed, and the Spirit in us is proof of our seal. That no matter how bad this world gets, His promise is He's going to deliver us to something so much better. And so we've been sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, Paul continues, verse 3, he says, My defense to those who examine me is this, Do we have no right to eat or drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So as Paul is building his case, as he's telling his story, he's saying, look, uh, we, Barnabas and I, should have the same rights as all the other 
apostles. We, we should have the right, just like the brothers of the Lord. There he's speaking specifically of James and Jude, and we have their letters in our New Testament. And he speaks of Cephas, which is the apostle Peter. And so what's happening here is the church, the network of churches is actually supporting the church back in Jerusalem. James, Jude, Peter, they are financially supporting the church. And what Paul is driving at is, is it only Barnabas and I who shouldn't be financially supported by you? Or is it just these men? Are they it? And so he continues in verse 7. He says, Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, And so he gives these very simple yet easy to understand examples. And the first one is who goes to battle? Who shows up, uh, signs up for the Air Force and says, I brought my own plane with me. My jet's out in the parking lot. Like that's ridiculous. You don't go to the army with one of these little personal tanks like this. I'm ready for battle, sir. I've got my tank with me. That's ridiculous. That if you're going to go into battle, all the supplies, everything you need is going to be provided for you as you go into battle. And this is what Paul is trying to drive at so they understand. He continues in verse 8. He says, Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen uh, God is concerned about? And so Paul makes this assertion himself, but what he is quick to do is bring it back to Scripture and say, I'm going to back up what I'm telling you with the Word of God. As a side note, I can say any kind of wild and crazy thing that I want from this swivel stool, and I have the microphone and you do not, so there's nothing you can do about it, but I need to back it up with God's Word. If I can't back it up with the Word, you need to question the validity of what I said. And I want to encourage you to do that. Acts 17, Paul encouraged the Bereans as they poured through God's Word to make sure what he said was accurate. That's a wonderful thing. And here what Paul says is, I'm making this case, I'm making this assertion, now I'm going to go back to God's Word and I'm going to back it up. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, where Moses says, you shall not muzzle the oxen while it treads the grain. So, In that day, as an oxen would tread the grain there on the threshing floor, they would tie an oxen together with a team, and they would just slowly make their way around the threshing floor. And as the little heads of grain would fall off, they would go back with winnowing forks and throw up the chaff that would blow away in the wind. But as the oxen were making their way around the threshing floor, they would allow them to just eat freely of the silage. They wouldn't put a muzzle on the ox because if you did, they would be weakened, right? So they were able to eat as they worked. And this is what Paul is saying that we need to be compared to as ministers. Now, as we read through this, I think it's important to note what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. I think oftentimes as we're reading through Scripture, especially the Old Testament, man, it gets laborious. It bogs us down. If you're in the Bible reading plan we're going through right now, the Bible study together, we're on like all the articles needed for the tabernacle, and we're like, what in the world? I don't know anything about an ephod or about uh, lampstands. Like, what is all this about? But what Paul says is all these things are actually here for our learning. 
So as we dig through God's Word and He reveals things to us, He pulls an obscure passage from Deuteronomy 25, and He says, is God concerned about the oxen? I mean, yes, He's concerned about the oxen, but He's really concerned about tying this back to people in ministry that are working for the Lord. And as a result, what He says here in verse uh, 9 is that we should be partakers then of hope. And so for the oxen, and Paul's comparing himself to an ox, as we plow, we should also be partakers in the hope. And to be a partaker of the hope is to be expectant of something good to happen. It's not a hope like uh, I'm putting it on a wing and a prayer. We're not Bon Jovi. We're not on a wing and a prayer here. We're not living on one. Instead, uh, we're looking at an expectation that our Heavenly Father has got something good in store for us. And so this is what Paul is communicating. He continues in verse 10. He says, Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes should thresh in hope and should be a partaker of that hope. Verse 11, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Verse 12, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure in all things, lest we hinder the gospel of God. And so they've planted spiritual seeds there in Corinth. And what Paul's saying is, as we planted spiritual seeds, we have the right, we have the liberty now to ask for physical means, for our needs to be met. And for this church, as I mentioned to you earlier, they're already supporting the church back in Jerusalem. And so Paul's saying, you're supporting them, but we're the ones that actually planted the church. And so we have this right to ask you for a support materially. He continues in verse 13. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? And so, as the nation had sin issues, they would bring about a sacrifice there to the temple or to the tabernacle for the priest to make an offering for a spiritual issue. They would bring a physical sacrifice. And as they brought a physical sacrifice for a spiritual issue, the priest would then offer up this physical sacrifice, but also be a partaker of the sacrifice. So, as they sacrificed the animal, there would be portions of it left over that were specifically for the priests and their families to be able to feed themselves. The same was true for a grain offering, as they would make the showbread there that would be inside the tabernacle. The priests and their families were the ones that could partake of the showbread. And so for the nation of Israel, as they came into Canaan, and God gave to every tribe a portion of the land, there was one tribe that did not get a portion, did not get an inheritance. And that was the tribe of Levi, the ministers. And what the Lord said is, I am your inheritance. I am actually your inheritance. And all the tribes all around were were to come together and support the ministers because their inheritance was in the Lord. And that's what they lived off of. And so what Paul is doing is he is bringing a spiritual connection to a physical offering. He continues in verse 14, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. 
And so he's gone Old Testament on it back in the days of the priests. Now he fast forwards New Testament to the time of Jesus. And what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, as he's getting ready to send the disciples out to minister, in verse 9, he says, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. And so what the Lord commands them to do as they're getting ready to go out and minister is to take absolutely nothing with them. To not put any money in their wallet, to not pack an extra change of underwear. You don't take anything except the clothes on your back and trust that the gospel is going to provide for you. And what Jesus makes it clear is a worker is worthy of his wages. And that's a tremendous amount of trust, folks. As they were called to go out and give this gospel presentation, they were called to trust in Jesus that he would provide through the power of this message. Now he continues in verse 15. But I, bringing it back to himself, have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. So Paul's made this whole case. He stated that he is deserving of a paycheck. And then he says, I don't want it from you. I would rather die than take money. I'm not writing this to shame you into taking care of me. Because here's the issue uh, that exists in Corinth. Uh, They were stingy. They struggled when it came to opening up their wallet and giving. And as Paul continues to address this in their lives, he didn't want to stumble them by accepting a paycheck. And so he said, I want to just share freely with you the gospel. I don't want to stumble you, so I'm not accepting anything. But his desire, and he addresses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. He says, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. His desire for these Corinthians was for them to be able to give. And they had a tremendous amount of means in the Corinthian church. They were probably the richest church that the Apostle Paul planted. And yet because of their stinginess, he wouldn't accept money unless they were able to give it from a heart that was cheerful. What Paul says is God loves a cheerful giver. The word in the Greek is actually the word hilarious. The idea is that when we go to give to the Lord, He wants us to go and that as we give, it's, it's downright funny. We should be able to put money in the box or to give to the Lord and literally be able to throw your head back and ha ha! Woo! Right? Like, thank you, Jesus. I can't believe I get to give to you. This is amazing. You let me live off of what was already yours. I'm just giving you a portion of it back. Thank you, God, for being so good to me. And this is what the way the Lord wants us to operate. There's a reason why, as a church, I don't talk to you about money, and we do not ask you about any kind of support or any kind of need that we have. Because if the Lord can't or won't provide it, then we didn't need it that bad. (laughs) The Lord is our provision. We will go to Him for any of our needs. We'll lay it there at His feet. And He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If He wants us to have or do something or take care of something, He'll just sell one of His cows and He'll take care of it. And, And we've been able in just a short period of time see it happen over and over again where the Lord just provides and He just provides. And so the the desire here is for them to be able to give cheerfully. 
And in one of the dumbest things you've ever heard a pastor say, uh, if you can't give from a spot like that, keep it. God doesn't need it that bad. He really doesn't. He's not broke. He's not filing for chapter 11 anytime soon. And so the encouragement there is to be able to give from a free and a willing heart. Now, as we continue, uh, chapter 9, verse 17. Excuse me, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. What Paul is saying is that he didn't get into this to make money. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme for the Apostle Paul. He is doing this because he was called by the Lord to share this unbelievable gospel message. And if you go back to the Old Testament, there was a guy who had probably the toughest job in all of the Old Testament named Jeremiah. Called to be a prophet to a nation that refused to listen. They were literally uh, headed to hell in a handbasket. And as Jeremiah shared over and over again, they needed to repent. They needed to get their lives straight. Uh, He preached to this nation of Judah for 40 years and had exactly that many people listen. Zero converts. And so in Jeremiah chapter 20, as he's experiencing this in his ministry, here's what he says in verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. He said, I quit. I'm having no success. I'm seeing nobody come to know the Lord. Nobody's repenting. I am not going to do it anymore. I quit. He'd been beaten. He'd been thrown in jail. He'd been put in dungeons. He said, enough is enough. But at the end of verse 9, His Word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. The Word of the Lord inside Jeremiah was like a fire. He had to share. He couldn't contain it. It wore him out. He's like, it doesn't matter what it cost. It doesn't matter what it takes. I'm going to share the Word of God if it costs me everything. And this is where the Apostle Paul is at. There's no amount of money you can give him or not give him that's going to stop him from sharing the message of hope that exists in the Gospel. Now, verse 17 For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. So even if I don't feel like sharing, I've still been entrusted with this. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. That I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. And so Paul says, I've been given this liberty. I could charge you. And yet I'm not going to. I'm going to give it to you for free. It's actually my pleasure. It's my honor to get to share God's Word and not require anything from you. I will tell you uh, on a personal note that I have had the opportunity to be very well paid to build all kinds of projects all through central Illinois and throughout many states in the Midwest. Things that I'm, I'm proud of. I mean, they're pretty awesome. And yet, nothing is comparable to getting the opportunity to share the gospel. I'd give them all up in a second. Walk away from all of them in a heartbeat compared to getting the opportunity to share the gospel. And it doesn't matter if I get paid, if I don't get paid. 
I've been able to see all kinds of wonderful things that are not eternal. And the truth is this thing is a thing that's eternal. I give my whole life up for this. I'll walk away from anything to have the opportunity to share God's word with people just like you. If God puts me in front of them, I'm excited about sharing with them what he's done in my life and what he can do in theirs. And so this is what Paul is communicating. God has changed him radically from the inside out, and he'd do it for free, and he'd do it over and over again. Now we continue in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all men, the Apostle Paul was free from all men, but I have made myself a servant to all. He was completely and utterly free. He didn't have to do anything. He got to go and share the gospel. And now he is free and he is able to be flexible. He continues in verse 19, that I might win all the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law as without the law, uh, not being without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ. In other words, I didn't go break the law like you're thinking about. That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. And so for Paul in his career, he he grew up as a Jew. In a Jewish household from the tribe of Benjamin, he was a Pharisee. And so he knew the law inside and out, upside and down, front to back. And he could relate to the Jewish people when it came to connecting Jesus as the Messiah. It wasn't going to be easy for them. There was a lot from their past life they're going to have to get over. And Paul could go to them and say, I get it. I've, I've been in the spot that you're in. And he could be a Jew to those who were Jewish. And at the same time, God had put him in a place there in Tarsus that was a, a Roman province. And so he grew up in a place where he was a Roman citizen. They spoke Greek fluently. He had Greek literature taught to him in school. And so he was able to go and connect to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, and say, I, I get it what it looks like for you to have supposedly all this freedom, but it's all a trap. It's all going to just leave you uh, in a spot of, of complete and total jail. You're going to be trapped in your sin. And so he could share with them in that spot. But all this Paul could do because the goal was what he had in mind. The goal was Jesus. The goal was to lead people out of their slavery, whether it was from the law or from their own sin nature. He had a singular focus in sharing the gospel with others. Now he continues in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in a way, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And so Paul now brings them to the spot to understand that all are running in a race. And as Paul is sharing about his liberties, and he's talking about giving up his liberty, in particular to charge these churches a fee so he didn't have to go and work, as he's sharing about this, he, he could share about giving up his liberties all because of where his focus was, on winning the prize, on finishing the race. The Apostle Paul was able to see up above all the muck and the mire because he had his eyes focused on heaven. That's where he was headed. And as Paul was sharing the gospel message in Acts chapter 14, he 
received an interesting response. Acts chapter 14, as he shared it there in Lystra, they didn't take as kindly as you might think to Paul's message of the gospel. Instead, verse 19, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, I have delivered some messages that I think were pretty decent and others that were not so good. And and yet at no point in time has anybody ever thrown a rock at me. And so I'm very thankful for that. But here's Paul. He's literally getting rocks thrown at him. They stone him and think that he is dead and drag him out of the city and just leave him there, laying there. That's not a really great day in ministry. And yet, if you skip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaking of that day, years later, he's reflecting upon it. And this is what he says in verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for man to utter. As Paul was in this spot where he had been stoned and left for dead, he was caught up into the third heaven. God gave him the opportunity to see exactly what he was fighting for, where the race was someday going to end. And so the reality for the Apostle Paul was no matter how bad the day seemingly went, no matter what he was caught up in, his eyes were fixed on the prize. Now, so often what happens for us is we get bogged down, right? Our eyes, they they lower off of the prize and they get caught up in what we see happening in our day-to-day life. For me this week on Wednesday, uh, we had the HVAC guy at the house because there's no air conditioning getting up to the upstairs. And so they come over at eight o'clock and they're changing, swapping out units to try to get more air up there. And, and as I get to work with a full day planned, I get the call that there's water in the basement. Like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I cancel as many meetings as I can. I make a beeline back home. And as I arrive, it's not just water, it's poop water. The sewage pump had stopped working outside. And so as I had Uh, had felt like this is probably the issue. I stopped by the rental store. I pick up a sewage pump. I open the well, and sure enough, it's full of poop. And I'm like, this is how my day is going to go. So I drop the pump in, begin to pump the poo water out into the ravine. Don't tell the city. Nobody, look, as I tell people, I'm an engineer. Dilution is the solution to pollution. So if you get enough rainwater, it'll dilute even poop water. So, uh, but now we've got poo water in the basement on the floor, and so I come here, get the shop back. My wife and the twins were sucking up poop water, dumping out poop water, putting poop water in the ravine. This is how the day is going. And as the day is going on like this, this is my morning, I am at some point in time I'm upstairs in the laundry room, and I'm like, what's that smell? Like, that's not poop. That's fire. Like, what is, and the fire alarm starts to go off in the whole house. As the HVAC guys are downstairs, there's poop water downstairs, poop in the ravine, and now I got the fire alarm going off because her dryer vent was clogged and the dryer was about to catch on fire. So now I got to make my way to Ace Hardware 
to get the little dryer vent, you know, cleaner out, dealy bopper, the goat, which is awesome, by the way. If you just run that thing, stuff comes out, it's great. But uh, my eyes quickly were on my situation and losing my temper and losing my cool. Why? Because I'm literally standing in poop. Like it couldn't have gotten much worse. This is what I'm thinking. And this is so often what happens, right? We get bogged down. We get to thinking about our stuff, thinking about standing in poo. But here's what I want to communicate to you, that if you believe in Jesus as your Savior, um, for me, that's as close to hell as I'm ever going to get. A little bit of poop water in a basement in light of eternity and hell, it doesn't seem that bad. Now, conversely, um, if I'm living for this world, if everything I'm living for is to make myself a little kingdom, I am heartbroken with poop in the basement because that's as close to heaven as I'm ever going to get. And I got to tell you folks that poo in the basement and fire alarms going off, that's that's one hell of a heaven. I don't want to live with heaven like that. And, and so the encouragement here from Paul is to get our eyes up. As we're running in the race, I want you to know that you only have to operate with the faith that God gave you in the lane he gave you to run in. Your faith is not my faith and mine isn't yours. He has given me the faith. I'm an ox treading grain. I'm just trying to tread uh, straight rows. I'm trying to plow ahead and, and keeping my eyes up all at the same time, operating with the faith that he has given me. Now, as we continue in verse 25, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Might have missed that one on Wednesday. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. So as we go on this race, what Paul is bringing them back to is that in that day they competed in the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games, but Olympic-style sports. And, and the big race was the marathon. And so for the marathon runners, they would compete, they would train. And training, by the way, takes discipline. The root word in disciple is discipline. And so if they wanted to endure the race, uh, starting off with a diet of a box of Twinkies, probably not going to get you to the end of the race. And so these men had trained their whole lives to be able to run these Isthmian games. And as they ran, if they finished in first, uh, they would find themselves standing before the governor of the entire land, and they would be presented with a crown for finishing the race. Now, uh, a little food for thought. As they competed, they often competed. No, not often, always. They competed completely naked. So try to get that out of your head. But as they competed in the race, uh, naked and then receiving a prize, I, I share that with you to say that as we appear before the Lord, you understand that all the things you think you're going to take to Him, uh, you're going to be uh, naked. All things are open and naked to Him. And the only thing we're going to receive is what he gives us to receive. And so they're competing now for a crown. We get to appear before him. All the stuff we thought was so important, it's wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to burn up, but he's going to give us a prize, an imperishable crown, just for endurance. It's not that we even have to finish first. We just have to get through this thing and get to the end, and he's going to give us an imperishable crown. Now, for many of you, you're like, you know what, I don't, I don't want a crown. I'm not doing it for a crown. And to that, uh, I say, I, I'm not doing it for a crown. But I got to tell you, if I'm standing before Jesus 
in his throne and he gives me a crown, I'm not saying, no, thank you, Lord. I'm saying, heap him on. I'll take all the crowns. I'll be the guy in the corner with a whole pile of crowns. That's what I'm looking uh, to have. But, but please get this, that as we receive crowns, it's only so that we can take them and cast them back at his feet. He gives us the faith. He then rewards us for the faith that we simply exercise. It's all his. And so we get this opportunity to cast crowns back at the feet of him who rewarded us in the first place. It's a, a beautiful promise. Now, as we head down the home stretch, verse 26, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I'm not a shadow boxer, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. And so what Paul is encouraging them to do is what he's saying about his own liberty, is I put my body under subjection. That so often we're body, soul, and spirit, and the body is controlling everything to do with us. But he wants us to be spirit, soul, and body. Put the body under subjection because the reality is it's a war. As you discipline your mind, as you go spirit first, the body is going to reject this. It's going to hate putting it under subjection. It makes sense. But Paul is encouraging them to do this, to be disciplined. And here at the end of verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And now as he talks about disqualification, he's not talking about not getting to go to heaven. But he's saying all the prizes that I thought I was building up, I'm going to disqualify myself for one very simple thing, if I lack integrity. Paul is saying that I should be able to share the gospel and be willing to give up my liberties. If I'm going to preach it to you, I'm going to have to live it in my household as well, in my life as well. This is going to require discipline on my part. And have you ever noticed when it comes to discipline that uh, discipline is easy when it's something we love? That the discipline, it's easy to be disciplined if it's something we love or we enjoy. And as we love and enjoy uh, something, we become disciplined in it, that then affects people all around us. Those who are closest to us can see the thing I, I really love. My, my actions imply what I believe. Now, as a kid growing up in Casey, uh, our CBS station was WTHI out of Terre Haute, which meant every Sunday after church, when we get home, uh, there was the Colts on TV, right? We didn't get the, the Bears games. We got the Colts games on WTHI, and I grew up loving watching the Colts. And I loved a really an unlovable team. I and mean, we had Jeff George and Jack Trudeau, and eventually we got the comeback kid. We got Jimmy, Jimmy H. Took us to the AFC Championship. Then I was excited, but then we're right back in the tank again until finally we drafted number 18. Right? And then he takes our Colts, Peyton Manning, up to the level of success. And for over a decade, we've got this tremendous run as a team, and I love the Colts. And so... What has happened in my household is, is I love the Colts. You, you know who my boys love, right? They love the Colts. And, and what they've seen in their lifetime isn't the Peyton Manning number 18 Colts either. They've seen us back in the toilet again. I mean, we're terrible. But you, you know why they love the Colts, right? Because I do. And so as we raise our kids or as we have interaction with people closest to us, understand they are going to love what you love. And they can always spot a fake. 
I can proclaim that I love something, but if they don't see me giving time to it, if they don't see me putting my resources, my efforts into it, uh, they know it's hypocrisy, that I'm, that I'm just faking it. And so the encouragement I want to give you there is as you fall in love with Jesus, it's going to affect your family and people outside your family and people you work with because those that are closest to us are going to know, they're going to pick up on what we truly love. Now, there's people in here probably in two camps. Maybe you're just knocking it out of the park, loving Jesus. And for you, keep going. I mean, keep pressing into them. There's always more to learn. For others, you have no clue what I'm talking about. You're still fighting for a crown here on earth, and it's so disappointing because even as you obtain an earthly crown, it doesn't take long before man snatches it right back away from you. And so I want to encourage you to press in for that heavenly crown, the one that that moth and thief and rust cannot steal and destroy, but it's imperishable. Now there's a third group, and those are the ones who, you've been to that spot of love, been in that spot of affection, and then something happened along the way. Things just kind of fade. You, in the words of, of Goose from Top Gun, you lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feeling. You lost that love and feeling because it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You lost that love and feeling somewhere along the way. Somewhere the, the journaling, the spending the time in the Word, it just, it just faded. And so if you're in that spot, one last place of Scripture before we go this morning. Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is writing here to the church in Ephesus who similarly had lost that love and feeling. At some point in time, they had lost their integrity. They, they were going hard for Jesus, but they weren't backing it up by loving Him at the same time. And so as the Lord commends them on how hard they were going physically, He says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. You've lost that love and feeling. And if you're wondering what to do at that point, thankfully the Lord gives us verse 5. He says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Repent. Lay it at His feet. Say, Lord, I lost that feeling at some point. I want it back. And go back and do the thing you did at the start. Maybe it was a Bible teacher you loved to listen to. Maybe it was spending time in the journal. Maybe it's uh, not hitting that snooze alarm three times and just being disciplined to get up and spend time with them. And if you're struggling with love and what you're reading, say, Holy Spirit, please give me a love to read this. And I want to encourage you because He will. He will give you that love. He will give you back that love and feeling, and it's going to have a profound effect on everybody that's running the race around you. And so, Father God, I thank you, and I praise you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have liberty in you, that we have a freedom, the ability to, to choose if we're going to follow hard after you or not. Father, would you please give us the courage? Would you please give us uh, the the Holy Spirit unction to be able to dig in and see what it is you have for us today and tomorrow and into the future. Father, I thank you for not giving up on us. I thank you so much for the power of the gospel, this fire that burns inside us, Lord. Would you give us 
encouragement to share this gospel message with those around us. We care about them. We love them. We want to see them for all of eternity, Lord. Give us the ability to just speak into their lives. What are you hoping for? What are you loving for? So, Father, give us that kind of courage. Give us that kind of first love feeling again about digging into your word. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.